You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Page 968. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I just want to say a few things this evening uh, as a kind of introduction to this, but I want to say uh, a wee, I was thinking about this just now, and I'm going to go ahead and do this, uh, a wee challenge for the boys and girls. Now, here's the challenge. Uh, from verse 3 to verse 10 is the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor. It's a great thing to get to know. So I'll do you a deal. If at any point over the next six months you can come to me and recite them, then I will find a very special prize for you. Okay? So if you can learn the Beatitudes. Now, I think it's, there are certain parts of the Bible that all Christians should memorize. The trouble is, if I ask the older people to do this, they're not as smart as you, and their, their minds have gone a bit, so they're not remembering things so well. But you are young and brilliant, and you remember things. So if you can learn this, it's up to you. You don't have to do it, but uh, any time over the next few months, oh, I'll give you till June. So you've got plenty of time. And let's say if you're 14 or under, and if you can uh, memorize this, uh, that would be very, very impressive. So there's a wee challenge for you. I'd like to challenge the adults as well, but I know they'll fail, so I don't, I, I don't want to make them feel bad. Matthew 5, words spoken by Jesus a long time ago, probably in the spring of AD 28 on a mountainside near Capernaum. Words, a different, very different mountainside from Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments came. Uh, Jesus spoke them after he had spent a night in prayer. And the scene is that he spoke them first of all to his disciples, though others were sitting around listening. And if you can picture the scene, it's a warm spring sunshine, the twelve immediately sitting around him, other disciples at a distance, and then people hanging around on the fringe, just kind of curious. And this teaching, as we know, had phenomenal impact on people. The people, you see, were used to going to the synagogue. And in the synagogue, they would hear learned debates from rabbis who um, argued about the precise points of the law. Rabbi so-and-so says this, rabbi so-and-so says that, and I think this, and I think that. And they come to church, and I know that sometimes you might think like this, but it was genuinely mega boring. And one of the things about Jesus, he was never boring, not because he did 
you know, really spectacular things, not because he did a song and dance, but because he taught people very clearly, but very profoundly. The Pharisees, the rabbis, didn't really educate the people or bring them near to God, but were using it to demonstrate their own cleverness. And here Jesus comes with enormous emotional impact, something that's relevant and something that's revolutionary, actually, and something that is very, very different. And I think that these, one of the reasons I wanted to come to this was I, I think that these Beatitudes are in direct contrast to what our culture says brings happiness. This doesn't seem right. I mean, we know what they say. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It just doesn't sound like blessings. If you were to use the old uh, chorus or hymn, count your blessings, name them one by one, how many of us would say, well, hunger, thirst, meekness, and so on, persecution? How can that be a blessing? Well, that's what we're uh, going to look at. I also want us to ask, just very simply, how relevant they are for us. Now, the disciples came to them and began to teach them. What better teacher to have than Jesus? That's why he gives us his word. He teaches us. And I do think that's really important to remember. John was talking about um, needing preachers in sky and we need preachers here. And, And I meant what I said when I prayed about wouldn't it be great if you had teachers of God's word on every street corner? I remember when I was in uh, Leith, just at the, the boundary bar there, uh, Iona Street in Leith Walk. It was quite incredible because this small street, each corner had a pub. And the one church across the road was closing down. And you think, well, just, you know, what, what do people need church for? Why do you need to come to church? Well, you need to hear the teaching of Jesus Christ, not the teaching of, of men, not the philosophies and fashions of this age, not what particular churches may or may not decide, but we need the teaching of Jesus Christ. Some want to argue these particular teachings of Christ are not relevant to us because they were given to the disciples or they're, they're too difficult. Uh, for example, if you go into chapter 5, Verse 29, it says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Well, how many of you are going to fulfill that literally? I hope none of you. Because it doesn't mean that you go and you pluck out your eye if, if, if it causes you to see things that are wrong or to sin. People were constantly taking the sayings of Jesus that were figurative, if you like, taking them literally in that sense and getting it completely misunderstood and completely wrong. So, for example, in uh, uh, John's Gospel, chapter 2 and verse 19, we read this. This was John's testimony. Oh, sorry, that's the wrong one. Beg your pardon. Not John chapter 2. John chapter 14 I was looking for. John chapter 14 and verse 4. You know the way to the place where I am going, said Jesus. Well, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
people didn't understand, very often people didn't understand what Jesus was saying. And I think it's important for us as we look at the teachings of Jesus to realize how he taught and the context in which he taught and what he was trying to say. And in that sense, understanding what the Sermon on the Mount is about, because you'll get plenty of people say, oh, I like the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount, and that's my religion, if you like. There are many people who wouldn't disagree with that. I think, um, uh, I mean this actually genuinely, I I love Her Majesty the Queen. I think it's fantastic that Britain has got uh, a queen who is a Christian, uh, a believer. But when I listened to her message on Christmas Day, it disappointed me because I felt, one, it probably wasn't written by her, and two, it was, uh, it was just kind of moralism. The message of Jesus is just, we've all got to love one another and be nice to one another, and that's not just the message of Jesus. And people will say, well, that's, isn't this what the Sermon on the Mount says? But it's not. You really miss out if you don't grasp what Jesus is teaching here. Let me just lay down some basic principles which will help you. First of all, he's dealing with fundamental principles of right and wrong, of conduct, of morality, which according to what he says remain the same in every age. So Matthew 5 verse 17, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. So when someone says, oh, I I like the Jesus of um, the Sermon on the Mount, but I don't like the God of the Old Testament, the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount says, I've not come to abolish what the law and the prophets say. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Well, what was accomplished? You could argue that uh, when Christ sit on the cross, it is finished, that everything was accomplished. But I think that ultimately everything is accomplished on the judgment day. And we can learn a great deal from the Old Testament, as Christ pointed out. I think the principles that are taught here are a reteaching, if you like, of the principles in the Old Testament. Some people will say, I'm not a Christian, so what do they have to do with me? Well, you listen to them, you hear the beauty of them, and you realize that you have no ability to live like Christ says, and then you flee to him. I've always found it quite astonishing that people will go, I don't like the law of the Old Testament, I couldn't live like that, but I do like the Jesus of the New Testament as though they could live like that. I read, I, I read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and I think, I, I can't do this. I can't live like this. And I think that's part of the point. When you become a Christian, you obey these, if you like, or you take these as your guidelines out of gratitude. We seek to be like Christ because this sermon and especially these Beatitudes, the part that from verse 3 to verse 10 that I've asked or challenged the children to remember, one of the key things to, to remember is that they describe the character of Christ. This is what Christ was like. Alistair Begg, when he was talking about this, says um, they're too difficult. It's like going into um, an an art gallery. I don't know if any of you, I I, I discovered in Waterstones, you get coloring books for adults now. 
So if any of you are really struggling during the service, I'm going to get some coloring books for you, because like we used to do for the kids. But you actually get coloring books for adults. It's just absolutely amazing. I almost bought one, because they actually look great. Um, but I've never seen that. Coloring books for adults. Is that a sign of the denigration of society? I don't know. But um, you, you get them. But imagine if you were kind of into that, or you, you were into art anyway, and someone took you in to see... I don't know, Picasso or, or a Van Gogh or something. And said, that's a brilliant painting, isn't it? Right, I want you to paint it. We're not going to be able to do it. And the Beatitudes, what we've got is not Jesus saying, well, listen, the Old Testament was too tough. So what I'm going to do is give you something that's a little bit easier. What he does is he says, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, that's got to be fulfilled. But I'm going to tell you what it really means. And he gives us something that's even harder, much harder. Um, And that's why when we think about this, it's so challenging. And it's why we need the Holy Spirit. Now, let me issue just a a kind of warning here as well. As again, this is all background. And don't worry, I'm not going to do uh, three points after this. (laughs) This is kind of just helping us set this whole thing in context. It is to those people who say, I don't, I, I don't mind the teaching of Jesus, but I don't like the rest of the Gospels, the 50% of the Gospels that talk about the death of Jesus. I don't want blood theology. I don't want atonement. Well, the trouble is we can't pick and choose. And the trouble is that the Jesus who taught this is the Jesus who also died. And the reason he died is because none of us can fulfill any of this without being reborn. What, what John was saying, you know, you think, okay, that's a life that's pretty desperate, and I can see how becoming a Christian changes that life. Listen, you might not be living in a scheme. You might live in a middle-class suburb, but as Tim Keller says, uh, um, the sins of the suburbs are exactly the same as the sins of the inner city or the scheme or whatever, except they're just behind drawn curtains. That's all. All of us need this, the, the forgiveness of sins, and that comes through the atonement. So when someone says, I don't like atonement, I don't like blood theology, and so on, what they're really saying is, I don't want forgiveness, or I don't think I need to be forgiven, or I certainly don't need the death of Christ. The cross and the Sermon on the Mount are absolutely intertwined. Let me also say something about the whole Sermon on the Mount, not just the Beatitudes. When you read it, when you read 5, 6, and 7... It seems sometimes a little bit random, like a collection of sayings. But when you study it in more depth, you realize that it's not. It's quite clearly structured. The whole theme is the good news of the kingdom of God. And again, I just I want to refer a little bit back to what John was saying. And I'm, I'm referring to this without making any political point in any way whatsoever. So please don't read between the lines. But when it was coming up to the referendum uh, on Scottish independence, one of the good things I think about it was the level to which people got involved. And I remember going through some of the schemes in Dundee and being utterly amazed how many people had posters, most of them yes posters, uh, in their windows, and how many people were out on the streets and getting involved, and the excitement that many people felt, including many people who are normally very, very cynical about politics. And I thought, well, some people, they're going to they're be really disappointed. 
Because even if independence is achieved, uh, then it's not going to turn into this nirvana that maybe they're looking for. The good news of the kingdom for them was, well, the good news of, of political independence. And that, you know that whatever happens, there's going to be disappointment there. But the Sermon on the Mount is about the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The first part of the Sermon on the Mount describes the citizens of the kingdom, their character and relation to the world. The second part is about the righteousness of the kingdom, and the third part is about entering the kingdom. And so Jesus begins, and we are, if we are Christians, we are citizens of the kingdom. We have a king, and we have a a principle by which to live our lives, which many of the people who you will meet when you go to work tomorrow, or you meet uh, at the gym, or you meet in the shops, or your friends, or your family, they desperately need to know this king. And in order for that to happen, we need to show the characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom. You know how we sometimes will describe people in terms of their nationalities. Uh, I'm reading a book just now about Scandinavia. It's absolutely fascinating. And I'm reading the part just now about the Finns. And just things about how the, the Finns speak very, very little. They make even the most gloomy Scots person appear very cheerful. And that's what, that's what this book is saying. I don't know if it's true or not. I'm going to ask Risto and Leanne. But um, it, it, there are characteristics of the citizens of God's kingdom which should be reflected in our lives. And these blessings, these beatitudes, they reflect that. They demonstrate something of that. Blessedness, by the way, is happiness, not just the feeling, but the overall well-being. We are blessed because. We are blessed because. I, I don't really know how to describe it except, to say, except, say as a church, we can, on a Sunday morning here, when you've got all the children, you say, well, we're blessed because of all these children. Or uh, some of you, you'll look at your Christian friends. And if you've got friends like this, it's wonderful. And you say, do you know, it's just such a blessing to know these people. And there are things in your life that you can look at blessings. It's not just feeling happy. It's genuine blessedness. Why do people take drugs? Because they seek happiness. Because they seek something to get away from the unhappiness. But the Christian has a blessedness which is kind of very different and counterintuitive to what the world expects. These poor Christians, you see, they are wretched, they are poor, they are terrible in so many ways. Oh, I wouldn't want to be a Christian. Look at Christians. And Christ says, when people look at you like that, just remember, you are blessed, you are happy in that sense, not only in heaven, but now. Now, there's one particular aspect of this that I also want to uh, address, and it's objection. I'm dealing really with objections that people have. And this is an objection, and it's a strange one, but I've heard from some Christians, and it bothers me a little bit, so I just want to say something about it. There are people who say, this was fine for Jesus. I'm talking about Christians, but our age is too evil. 
was reading a, a man called Gary North, who's what's called a theonomist, which I won't go into just now, but he says this. Nevertheless, this one fact should be apparent. Turning the other cheek is a bribe. It is a valid form of action for only so long as the Christian is impotent politically or military. By turning the other cheek, the Christian provides the evil coercer with more peace and less temporal danger than he deserves. By any economic definition, such an act involves a gift. It is an extra bonus to the coercing individual that is given only in respect of his power. Remove his power and he deserves punishment. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Remove his power and the battered Christian should either bust him in the chops or haul him before the magistrate and possibly both. I think this is referred to as muscular Christianity. I'd prefer to call it just idiotic Christianity. It's not Christianity. What he's saying, forgive the the jargon, but what he's saying is just simply this, that when Christians are weak, then fair enough, turn the other cheek because you can't do anything anyway. But if you get power, then use the power. But that is not what Christ is teaching. People argue these are too passive, too self-renunciatory. This is the age of assertiveness training. And what Christians need to do is to be more aggressive and stand up. And we need to campaign and we need to be involved uh, in, in politics, defending Christian values. We need programs. We need action. But... I would like to suggest to you that whilst it's good for Christians to be involved in these things, it is wrong to seek to promote Christianity in that way because of the two things that are clear from the teaching of Jesus. Firstly, that his kingdom is spiritual. John 18, 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Or Romans fourteen seventeen, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not arguing that all Christians are just walkovers. But it is saying this. We fight with very different weapons. And the attitudes that we have are to be very different. It is a spiritual kingdom. And that's why blessed are the poor in spirit, for example. You look at all of this. It's just very different from the world around us. They don't understand how you can be a Christian and possibly be happy at all. But from the Christian perspective, we don't understand how people living in the world can be happy with all its aggressiveness and and so on. There was... An extraordinary interview with Eddie Mayer. Um, I did uh, put it on uh, my own blog. If you want to look at it, it's we Solas uh, ripped it off. It's with the mother of the man who went into the Amish school and just took the girls and shot the girls. I can't remember how many died. I think it was seven. And it was an extraordinary interview. Eddie Mayer, who um, some of you may not know, is from Whitfield in Dundee. doesn't sound like it, but he's a brilliant interviewer. He's on Radio 4, and he was doing this interview, and I would encourage you to listen to it. And he, he asked questions that were just stunning, I think, and, and, and her answers were even more stunning. The mother described how she came home, and her husband was there. She'd heard about the shooting, and she's saying, oh, that's where my son you know, parks his van or whatever. And 
her husband, there were police cars outside her house and her husband came to the door and she thought, oh no, it's my boy and all this and maybe he's been shot. And then to be told that he was the one who'd done the shooting and she couldn't, she just said that she collapsed in the middle of the street, screaming and shouting and, and people came out and asked her to be quiet because people were trying to sleep and, and she was taken into the house and her husband was completely devastated. They were devastated. They had no idea what was going through his head. No idea that anything like this was happening. He was married with children. And uh, one of the Amish parents came to visit them straight away. And she couldn't believe that they came to visit and came in. And her husband was standing, was just sitting there in absolute just trauma, as you can imagine. And she describes how uh, the Amish man just came and gave him a hug. But their children had just been killed. And they hugged the father of the man who'd done it. And it, as I say, it was an extraordinary interview. Um, Eddie Mayer asked questions, for example, like, uh, do you think your son is in heaven or hell? And she said, well, I am. It was such a wise answer. She said, I'm so thankful I'm not God. That is not my responsibility. And she talked about forgiveness and she talked about how hard it was. And it was very realistic. It was very real. But anyone listening to that interview, you've got to say, this is out of this world. How can you explain that? How can you explain the reaction of the Amish? How can you explain, uh, the woman herself was a Christian. How can you explain her reaction? One of the girls who uh, was shot, didn't die, became very, very severely handicapped. And uh, this lady went every week to visit her and to be with her. It just the whole tale is an extraordinary, instead of right, Blood for blood, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. This has got to be. Christ's kingdom is spiritual and it works in a way that is so radical that it just turns everything upside down. And then consider this in terms of how God works. It was not in the storm nor in the earthquake that he spoke to Elijah, but it was in the whisper. Zechariah 4.6 says this, So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Why did John come to believe? Because of a series of remarkable coincidences, he goes through the man drawer, reads the Catholic liturgy, doesn't understand it. His sister comes home with a New Testament given by the Gideons, just at the very time that he was looking. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God's Spirit, as I was trying to say this morning, needs to be working in our lives, and we pray that He will be working in other people's lives. It's been one of the most lovely things about the last year to see how God's Spirit has worked in people's lives in the congregation here. Um, I think it was Harry, uh, or this morning maybe Will, praying about how the number of students who've become believers. That's wonderful. To see how God is working in very young children, to see how God is working in the elderly, and that is the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 30, 15 says, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. Some of us I think are, forgive this expression, but we're spiritually OCD. 
Right? We're just running around like demented rabbits, just trying to do this, trying to do that. Trying to, we just, we, we've got to be active in absolutely everything and doing everything. This idea of repentance and rest and quietness and trust, it's not asking for a passivity. It's just simply saying, acknowledging that the Lord is in control, that the Lord is in charge. I think these beatitudes are the essence of Christ. The qualities which the Lord demands are qualities that He Himself holds in infinite degree. We need these qualities. We need this kind of vital Christianity. Sometimes in this world, the world values qualities that are good, and Christians want to copy that and to be praised for that by the world. But more often than not, the qualities that Christ speaks of are ones that people look and go, no, I just don't get that. I, I, I don't see how that's possible. I don't see how it works. But when it's shown in the life of believers and in the community of believers, then it has an enormous impact. There are people who say, I want to complain or I, want, I don't believe because of the harm that religion does. And that's true. You can understand that because there's so much religion that causes harm. And I think, uh, I'm not just thinking of the extremists like ISIS. But then, maybe we need to also realize and people need also to see that there is a, a religion, if you like, a faith in which there is tremendous good that is done, and the good is that which comes from within. We are going to ask in this coming year for the Lord to work in our midst. We want Him to work in different places. Think of what's been going on in Montrose, or in St. Andrews, or Brody Ferry Presbyterian Church, or Grace Church uh, at the other end of town, or what we want to do in Charleston and what we'd like to see happen here or whatever church that you are from, we pray that God would prosper you and bless you. But if God is going to work and extend, if you like, using the image from Isaiah of extending our tents, extending our cords, then in order for us to cope with the storms that come and the difficulties that come, we also need to deepen our stakes. We need to get deeper into Christ and to become more like Christ. And that's where uh, these beatitudes come to us. So it's my prayer uh, that if you are a believer, if you, well, if you're not a believer, actually, it's my prayer that you will come to see that this is the most beautiful thing, the most beautiful way to live, and that you would come to know Christ. But if you are a believer, uh, it's my prayer that not only will the children uh, and all of us remember these, but that we will live them as the Holy Spirit enables us and as Christ goes before us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you took your disciples and you began to teach them. And as you taught them in Capernaum on that mountainside, after a, a night of prayer, so also you teach us. Help us to be a prayerful people and help us to look for what you have to say to us through your word. And Lord, may we not just be hearers, but may we also be doers of your word. Fill us with your spirit 
and grant that whatever happens in 2016, that we would grow in grace. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.